Well, this, uh, this seminar is part of our Fighting for Joy series. We try to do uh, two of these seminars a year, um, addressing how we as, as a body can pursue joy in God together and acknowledging there, there are some topics, issues, um, where it requires some, some special kind of processing or particular attention to think through how we can pursue joy together in those areas. So over the past several years, we've um, addressed marriage, uh, homosexuality, the gospel in the workplace, things like this. Tonight, uh, Bruce Ashford is with us to lead us in thinking about how Christians should engage culture. So that's our topic for tonight. American culture uh, is in the process of secularizing. So there's this worldview shift towards secularism, uh, and that's expressing itself in many ways, one of which is a moral revolution. So this week, Tuesday, the Supreme Court will be hearing arguments as, uh, about whether states have constitutional right to redefine or to define marriage between man and a woman. And if they do have that right, must they recognize um, marriage, same-sex marriages from other states? No, but questions like this would have been unthinkable 25 years ago, and yet here we are. Nonetheless, as a church, we should be encouraged you know, that God has not lost control over his world. And actually, uh, the gospel is exploding in many places all over the world. Uh, I was just reading a book this week called A Wind in the House of Islam by uh, David Garrison, a, a researcher in missions, who portrays how, despite much of the um, you know, visible media coverage about ISIS and things like this, there, there is something happening among Muslims around the world. There's a multiplying number of movements to Christ among Muslims in countries all over the place. Uh, he published that just this past year and has data on the past 15 years, all these things that God has been doing, just very encouraging to read. So we remember God reigns. He reigns over all the world. America is God's country, but in exactly the same way that Nigeria is God's country, and so is Iraq and Syria, because the world is God's world. So we observe our own culture, and we're rightly saddened by the shrugging off of moral decency and so many other things, and yet we look at the world and remember that God reigns over it all. And he has not ceased to make his gospel known and cause it to advance in many places all over. So these, these two truths should kind of bring some balance to our perspective and even our emotions about the things that we see happening. But still, we do need to think carefully about our own culture, about the place that God has put us in. Uh, and it is a secularizing culture, and yet in his providence, he has intentionally put us here in this moment. So that's what this seminar is intended to help us think about. In our culture, in our time, how, how should we be postured towards the world around us? How should we engage the opportunities and institutions um, in our city and in our country? So we're grateful to Bruce for being with us uh, tonight to lead us in thinking through this. Bruce is the uh, provost at Southeastern, and he's also one of the elders at uh, a great church in the area, Summit. So um, he brings to these issues not just the seminarian mind, but the, the heart of a pastor who, who cares about people in his own church and cares about the people of this church as well, cares for you. So 
We're grateful for that, and I know you'll be blessed by his teaching. Um, his book, Every Square Inch, is it actually the title of this seminar, uh, an introduction uh, for Christians to cultural engagement. There are some copies of that book available. If someone is interested in getting that, we'll have those at the back afterwards. They're uh, $10. So can I pray for you as you come? Lord, we're thankful for this time together and do ask that you would um, use it for our instruction in your word, that, um, that by considering your, your word, which gives us instruction for every, every aspect of life and godliness, um, that we would be edified and that our engagement of our culture and the time and place you've put us would be better, that our, our delight in you would actually grow as we think about these things together. So pray for Bruce as he teaches that you would... Um, give him clarity, and may our minds and hearts be fully engaged so that we benefit from this teaching. We trust you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, well, good evening. Uh, thank you for allowing me to uh, to come and be with you this evening. I had the honor of preaching here, um, I think, 12 or 14 years ago after I had just returned from being a missionary. And there was a missions conference here, and I had the honor of being on the, the same uh, uh, bill with uh, Dr. Imad Shahada, I think I said it correctly, and had a wonderful time here. So so happy to be back. Since then, I've gotten married, and uh, so I want to say uh, bring greetings from my wife, Lauren, and our three children. Uh, we've got two daughters, Riley and Anna, they're five and four, and a son, Kuiper, who is two, almost two. And so I think it was a wise decision uh, for me not to bring my children this evening in light of my son. So, so they're at home. Um, <clears throat> 1998, October of 1998, I left on a plane to go live in a Muslim portion of the country of Russia. I had never been out of the country before. I grew up in a pig farming community in North Carolina. Um, I had never been anywhere, never been to Mexico, never been to Belize, never been on a mission trip. And I left on October the 20th of 1998. And for the next two years, I lived in one of the most uh, fascinating places, socially, culturally, and politically, in the world. I lived among the Tatar people who had been conquered by the Russians. Now, the Tatars had defeated the Russians seven major wars over the past uh, 1,500 years, but the Russians finally conquered them and subjugated them. And I lived, and, and they're still afraid of them. The Russians are still afraid of the Tatars. And I lived in, a, in this republic. Now, Chechnya had just broken off from Russia. And I lived in Tatarstan, and the Russians had given some concessions to the Tatars. So it was sort of a Muslim republic, and then sort of not, because it was Russian. And uh, so the, the challenges that I faced, having been just a young uh, country boy, I was only 22 at the time, is uh, I was living in my apartment. I had an apartment on the fifth floor of uh, our apartment building, and I looked out over a mosque in an Eastern Orthodox cathedral. So I had some religious challenges. How do you speak the gospel into the lives of Muslims in Eastern Orthodox? I had uh, other uh, simpler challenges, culinary challenges. So there were lots of good food there, but I do remember my first week I had two encounters that I will not soon forget. One is that early in the morning for breakfast, around 6.30 a.m., I was served fish jello. <clears throat> now, not jello, 
per se, but gelatin, congealed fat with fish in it for breakfast. Um, I also, one evening, was served kumis. Now, kumis is, um, my buddy said, hey, you know, I said, I want to I drink a, a national drink, you know, you know something, something that the Tatars are known for. He said, oh, we've got just the thing for you, buddy. And it's, just, it, it's a lot like a milkshake. And sure enough, when they brought it to me, it was white and frothy. But it was fermented mare's milk. So at some point in Central Asian history, an entrepreneur had decided to milk a horse and then, and then let it rot and then sell it, and people bought into that. So there were some culinary challenges. There were um, climate challenges for me. So it was 40 below zero in the winter. You could take... You could see the children outside, and I did it too. It was just me and the children. Um, you could take a cup of hot coffee, and you could throw it in the air. And the only thing that would hit the ground was chips of ice and coffee grounds. It would freeze that quickly in two seconds' time, 40 below zero. So there were climate challenges. There were social challenges, like how to socialize interpersonally. There were some really bizarre moments. Many of them I can't talk about in public, but uh, I have a few borderline uh, Stories I could tell for a second before we dig into the meat of this. I mean, I, I remember something as simple as smiling in public. I was taught growing up that if you're an upstanding American citizen, and then on top of that, if you had been, you know, um, changed by the gospel, that you would smile and smile often and smile publicly. But in Russia, if you smile publicly, it signals something a little different. Um, they told me very quickly that people thought that I was either inebriated or mentally challenged or insane because they're the only kind of people that smile in public. <laughs> I mean, that's actually a challenge. I mean, it really is. I mean, what do you do? Do you not smile in public? Um, there were some other challenges. Um, I told my friends that I would like to do something distinctively Tatar in terms of leisure, and they suggested the banya. They said it will be a lot like an American sauna. And sure enough, it was a square room with a lot of heat. But one of the things they did in the sauna is they poured vodka on the coals, and the other thing they did is they whipped each other with birch branches. And as that was happening to me, and it never happened again, I never went back. I thought, if this happened in America, it would signal something slightly different. <laughs> and uh, so there was just, it was just odd. But then there were the cultural institutions like marriage and government were just so vastly different from what I was used to that it was a really uh, a challenging atmosphere for me. And what I want to talk about, I think we in the States, well, let me back up for a minute. So after I lived in Russia, I've also done mission work in 45 or 50 countries, usually in Muslim countries and usually uh, working with the persecuted church. And in those contexts, it finally dawned upon me how different, how radically different it is to live under the lordship of Christ than to live under the lordship of false gods and idols. Radically different. And uh, most Christians throughout history for 2,000 years have lived as minorities in their countries. And they have had to live out their faith as a small, persecuted, excluded minority. In the United States, that wasn't quite the situation. What we had was a confused marriage of uh, lukewarm Christianity and civil religion in the U.S. But right now, we're in a situation where things are changing, and they're changing rapidly. I mean, in five years' time, I think there's been more change than 20 years before that. And we are quickly becoming a minority, and I think we tend to be afraid. We tend to be angry because we see ourselves losing control as if we ever had control. And that's what we want to deal with. That's what I want to talk about um, this evening. I, I initially entitled this, I have two titles. 
Uh, initially, I'd entitled it, Why Everything You Learned About Culture from the Age of Five is Wrong. Now, to be more precise, I would probably say something like this, why it's very possible that many of the things that you learned about culture from the age of five are probably at least partially wrong. You know, but the first title was more snappy. Um, the other way that I could title this is uh, Every Square Inch, an Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians. And that comes off of a quote by my uh, favorite theologian of all time, Abraham Kuyper, who said uh, that the Lord Christ says when he looks at his universe that there is not one square inch of this universe over which I do not say it is mine. He owns it. He's sovereign over it. It's his. And so we're going to talk tonight about how to bring our cultural lives under submission to the lordship of Christ in the arts, sciences, politics, economics, scholarship, education, sports and competition, homemaking, leisure. I mean, all of these different areas that combine to make up what we call culture. Now, before we go into the scriptures in a moment, I want to ask, what is culture? I want to define what we're talking about for just a moment. You've got notes here. When I say the word culture, people often think of high, high culture, like Rembrandt's paintings or Beethoven or Bach's music. Well, we mean that, but we mean something a lot more than that. Other people, when they hear culture, they think pop culture, Hollywood movies, Nashville music, or whatever kind of music you listen to, Compton or you know whatever. Um, so movies and music. Well, we do mean that, but we mean much more. Other people, when I say culture, tend to have in mind only, you know, sort of what the Bible means when it talks about the spirit of the age. They, culture just has a pervasively negative connotation. And so when they think of culture, they just think of all of the negative things in a particular cultural context. So I mean that, but I mean a lot more. What I mean is something like this. That culture is what results when God's imagers interact with the rest of God's creation. As we'll find out in a moment when I get into the scriptures in a more extended manner, God told Adam and Eve to, among other things, he told Adam to till the soil. He wasn't just telling Adam to be a farmer. You know, it's great. I want everyone to grow tomatoes, everyone in the world. You know, he was saying something different. He was saying, I want you to take the world I've given you and I want you to make something of it. I want you to change it. I want you to bring out its potentials. This is essential to, to what it means to be human. And that's what we're talking about. And culture is a vast phenomenon. It includes houses and cars and music and movies and art and science and politics and economics, and scholarship and education, and homemaking and leisure, and all of these different sorts of things. Such a vast and, and massive thing to try to get our arms around. Number two. So first we want to define culture, and the second is we want to ask what is an appropriate way to view the relationship between Christianity and culture. Now, I could give six or eight or ten categories, you know, tonight, but I think three are sufficient for helping us to get a handle on this. And I'm going to save the, 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 my preferred option for the last one, for the third. So one option is to view Christianity as entirely um, opposed or almost entirely opposed to one's cultural context. And depending on how bad one's cultural context is, you're going to lean a little more toward that category, and rightly so. But the problem with this view is that it views culture itself as inherently bad. That's something you want to escape from, as if it weren't a gift from God, the fact of it weren't a gift from God. And in the United States, I think we're tempted toward this view right now, especially as we see how uh, false gods and idols are taking more and more control, so to speak. We know that God is in control, but we see... Um, corruption and misdirection and the, the, the warping and corruption and denigration of our cultural context. 
Now, one manifestation of this view is what I would call the bomb shelter mentality. And that when we see things going badly around us, we withdraw into a protective huddle and hide. And we argue that this is not the best case scenario for a Christian. It's not the preferred option. Another version of Christianity versus culture is what I would call the ultimate fighter scenario. And that is instead of withdrawing and hiding, it's lashing out. Usually lashing out in a systematic manner, in a comprehensive manner. And usually there's anger and um, vengeance on one's mind because of the bad people who have taken their culture away from them. Instead of grace and joy, which we'll get to in a moment. And I think this is the view that I held growing up and held up into my early 20s was this view. I was a Christian against culture and I oscillated between bomb shelter and ultimate fighter. A second view is Christianity of culture. So liberals, theological liberals, um, are going to tend toward this view, whereas theological conservatives tend toward the one I just mentioned. Christianity of culture tends to view one's cultural context as inherently good. If it's there, it must be good, or mostly good. And um, I think in the United States, some Christians have been tempted to accept American culture uncritically and incorporate it seamlessly into their lives. But it can be done with conservatives, too. We can just import uh, certain forms of music or certain ideas about leadership into the church seamlessly, as if those ideas that we just ripped out of a corporate magazine would fit seamlessly into leading God's people. They don't. Okay, so conservatives or liberals can do this, and I call this category Christianity as a chameleon because what happens is uh, Christianity just becomes like its surroundings. I mean, it can change and become like its surroundings anywhere it is, just like its surroundings, uncritically. The third category, this is my preferred category. I think this is... Uh, what we come up with when we go into the scriptures and spend time reflecting upon them as a whole and uh, trying to ask how do we interact with the culture. And that is going to be Christianity in and for culture. So we are supposed to be in a cultural context. You can't be human unless you're in a cultural context. You cannot escape. And if you don't like culture, the bad news is on the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be replete with culture and you're going to be trying to escape then too. Because it's going to be a thoroughly cultural existence with art and architecture and song and all of these sorts of things. And so culture is a part of what it means to be human. You can't be human without it. So we're in it and we are for it. And when I say for the culture, I don't mean agreeing with it. I mean we want to live and speak and act and interact for the good of our neighbors. We want to safeguard the public interest. We want to contribute to the common good. And the way we're going to do this is as Christians. Only the gospel and only the scriptures can help us to do that well and comprehensively. And that's what we're going to argue for. And so in this view, culture is structurally good but directionally bad. If I could give you some systematic theology terms for a moment that I draw from uh, some theologians like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink and, and some other guys. Structurally good. And what I mean by that is that when God instituted such a thing as, when he made the world, he made it to have these sorts of things. So the fact of it, the fact that it exists is good. However, directionally, culture is a mixed bag. And here's what I mean by this. That human beings, human, uh, the Bible uses heart language to talk about a, who, a, who, who a person is at their, in their essence. 
And our hearts are always oriented either toward Christ or toward some false god. There's no other choice. We're either covenant keepers or covenant breakers. We either love Christ or we love some other god ultimately. And our heart is directed either toward Christ or toward some idols. And the heart tends to radiate outward into everything that a person does. And because the heart radiates outward into everything we do, our work, our leisure, our family life, etc., our cultural doings are going to be affected by our heart orientations. When you put that together into a whole society, an entire culture or subculture is shaped by the directions of people's hearts. So to give you a sneak peek before we get into the scriptures, I'm going to argue that what we ought to be doing is discerning God's creational design for whatever type of cultural activity we're engaging in and then trying to discern how it's been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry and then third how we can redirect it toward Christ those are my three big questions that we've got to ask but first we want to build a biblical theology of culture okay so if you'll turn your sheet of paper over for just a moment I've got I'm a little bit of a crow magnet I'm not a graphic designer as you can tell it took all that I could muster to put four text boxes together for them to align correctly on the page. So if you could just applaud quietly on the inside that we even got this much out of, out of me. Um, here's what I want to do. Instead of reading a text and teaching exegetically, which is what I normally do, on this particular topic, I think the most helpful thing to do is to take an architectonic view of the Bible as a whole in its four major plot movements, worldview plot movements, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so I'm going to take a, a look at that as an architectonic whole, make a few other comments, and then close with a passage that if I was forced to pick one passage, this would probably be my favorite in all of Scripture, and that's going to be Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, the Christ hymn. So I want to start, and, and you're going to notice that I'm going to have to walk very quickly through this. And that's why I gave you some notes, and I've also got a book that can help you walk through this if you're interested in the book. I brought my book with me, and it walks through this in more detail. So four plot movements. Now, I need to tell you this uh, so that you don't get nervous and start looking around for the nearest bottle of Prozac, okay, or whatever it is that treats anxiety. I'm going to spend the most of our time on the creation plot move because I think it's the one that's the most underemphasized, okay? And so when I have spent 10 full minutes on this, you need not worry. I'm not going to spend 10 full minutes on the other three, all right, before we have our break. So creation. In the creation account, I want to pick out a few things. I'm going to have to leave a lot of things and only just select a few things, okay? So I'm now giving you a full view of the creation account. But when the Lord created, he created by means of his word. So by means of his word, he called forth something from nothing. And by means of his word, he shaped it and ordered it. What he gave to us was an ordered world. And there is a way to live within that ordered world. We want to live with the grain of the universe instead of against the grain of it. So God created by means of his word. And then after each uh, creative act, he said, and it was good. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. So what we learn from that is the goodness of God's creation. So what we have is we have an ordered, good creation. This is very important because, because the concept of culture is tied so closely to the concept of creation, right? Because cultural realities are physical and material realities. And if you think the physical and material world is bad and that we just want our soul to escape from it and sort of fly away into some ethereal never-never land to never come back, that's not the view the scriptures give us. 
I mean, the Christian distinctive is the affirmation of the physical and material universe. That's what separates us from all the other religions in addition to salvation by grace through faith. That we affirm the goodness of the physical and material world and that's why the Lord Christ, when he came, could take on human flesh. And that's why one day we'll have a new heavens and earth that we live on. So you may fly away, but you'll fly right back. That's what I always say. I will, during Q&A time, if, if you had questions on that, I can fill that out a little bit more. Um, so then God created Adam and Eve, and he created them in his image and likeness. There are two different words there for image and likeness, but they have heavily overlap, and I don't think they're used to, dis, they're not used, there's not two words for the purpose of distinguishing between them. They denote one concept. If you want to get a clue um, of what the image of God is, one of the things, so my view is that the image of God is the whole human. And so uh, being created in the image of God is what it means to be human as a whole. It includes uh, spiritual capacities and rational and physical and um, um, creative and relational capacities. And one of the reasons I come to that conclusion is when God announces that we're created in the image and likeness of God, he gives several commands to Adam and Eve. And I think those commands give us a little bit of a picture of what it means to live as imagers. Um, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. So that's a social command. In other words, fill the earth with worshipers until they spread across the face of the earth. Then he says, I want you to till the soil. Now, this wasn't a command for everyone to be a farmer, although agriculture is a very important part of human culture. I think what he was saying is, here's my completed world that I just gave you, and I called it very good, and now I want you to make something out of it. I want you to bring out its hidden potentials. I want you to do something with it. I'm the king of this whole creation, but you're my under kings. I created, but I want you to be creative. So till the soil is a cultural command. We have a social command, a cultural command, and then finally a kingly command where he says, I want you to have dominion. I want you to lovingly rule over my world. Now, don't you forget, I'm the real ruler. I'm the king, but you're my vice king. You can rule underneath me. So in order to do those things, and you'll notice this throughout the scriptures, you'll, you'll see how this plays out. In order to be the social, cultural, kingly beings that he's called us to be, we have to have certain capacities. And the animals may have particular of these capacities in, in one respect or another, but the animals will never have the whole, the whole package. And let me tell you what the whole package is. We are, first of all, spiritual beings. We can know and love God in a way that a ferret, a yak, or a gerbil never can. I mean, I know that your dog, little uh, Justin Bieber, is part of the family, little Jay Biebs, and I know that he may put his paws up on the coffee table and pray whenever you have family prayer time. And he might even say woof, woof when you say amen. I mean, I don't know. But he can never commune with God the way you can. And that's at the, that's at the heart of being created in the image and likeness of God. Along with that is a rationality. I mean, that's a part of the image and likeness of God that we can. Uh, and then there's creativity, that we can uh, be creative the way God created. And there's relationality, that we can not only be in relationship with God, but with one another. We can love one another with a depth that, uh, you know, your, your pet uh, ferret, little uh, Kim Kardashian, cannot. Um, a few of you uh, appreciated that. Thank you for the complimentary chuckles. Um, so create an image and likeness of God. And then finally, in the doctrine of creation, I want to point out that there were four relationships that you can see operative. And these relationships were all uh, right. We can use a Hebrew word shalom to describe the state of things at the time of creation. Now, shalom is usually in, translated in the English language as 
piece. Uh, the English language doesn't really have uh, a word that carries the freight of the Hebrew word uh, shalom. I mean, you peace is not a bad translation, but uh, a better, fuller translation, we'd have to pile on some English words. So shalom is universal, flourishing, delight, peace, order, harmony, justice. It just carried this notion of everything fitting and being in place the way it ought to be. Everything was right. Four relationships. We had a right relationship with God, Adam and Eve did. Right relationship with each other. Right relationship with the created order. And right relationship with self. Now I know that seems odd that one would have a relationship with oneself. You would have in mind a person, you know, maybe in a room telling himself jokes and then laughing in astonished appreciation of his own wit. But uh, this is not what we mean. We just mean that the, the pers- the, 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 a person was ordered rightly. And, and now after sin, we're disordered, aren't we? We're not rightly related. The parts of who we are aren't right, re- rightly related to each other. And so this is the doctrine of creation and what it has to do with culture. When we get to the fall, I'm going to have to be concise to the extreme and go with blinding speed here. This is very important. And the fall happens in just the span of a few verses in Scripture. But uh, Scripture at, from Genesis 3 onward shows us the effects of the fall all the way up to Re- until you get to Revelation 21 and 22. And what happens here is that Adam and Eve questioned God's word and doubted his goodness. Now, you remember under creation, we talked about God's word that created the world and ordered it. Well, they questioned that word. Remember, we talked about God saying it is good and it's good and it's good. and It was very good that all the gifts that God gave us were good gifts. It implies that he's the good king, the good gift giver. Well, they questioned his goodness. They questioned his word and questioned his goodness. They strove for autonomy. What is autonomy? Independence. But autonomy is a lot more robust word than independence. When somebody wants to be autonomous, they want to be entirely independent and walled off, completely in charge of themselves. And that's what Adam and Eve ended up grasping for. And Scripture later talks about their sin as a sort of um, idolatry, a false worship. Um, and what happens in the aftermath of the fall is that humans continue to be social and cultural and kingly beings. In fact, we can't be anything other than that, but we do it badly instead of doing it well. And everything we do is shot through with the effects of our sin and idolatry. So it affects all of our capacities. Spiritually, we are separated from God. And the scriptures even say at enmity with God, enemies of God fighting against him. Um, Morally, we do the evil instead of the good. And even when we do the good, we don't do it for the ultimately good purpose, for God's glory. Rationally, we have difficulty discerning truth at all. and We have an impossibility of discerning spiritual truth. That God has to break in and focus our eyes and turn our hearts toward him and help us to see spiritual truth. Creatively, we make idols with our creative abilities and then worship the things we've created, like malls or drones or fashion or music. We make things and then love those things and love them in a way that only God should be loved or trust in them or feel secure because of them in a, a way that only God should give us our love or our security. I mean, these sorts of things. Relationally, we're corrupt, aren't we? I mean, if you look at Romans chapter 1 when it talks about the consequences of the fall, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and all the different, Paul gives this long laundry list of sins that's proof that all of us have our hearts bent against God. A vast majority of them are relational between one person and another, that we sin against each other. 
Then finally in the fall, all four relationships are torn asunder. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationships with each other are broken. Our relationship with the created order is broken. Let me talk about that one for a minute. People usually don't. What do you mean? Well, take the sun, for example. The sun is meant to put vitamins in our skin and make us happy. And I think it raises the level of serotonin, if I'm not mistaken. And it helps plants grow. But the sun also kills us now and gives us skin cancer. And so things aren't the way they ought to be. And then vice versa, instead of us lovingly caring for God's creation, we exploit it and plunder it and ruin it. Then finally, we have wrong relationship with self. <clears throat> Disease, physical sickness, psychological disorder. There's a disordering uh, inside of us, in the brain, in the heart, in the body. Things aren't the way they, should, they ought to be. And that's why cultural realities are never the way they ought to be. That's why we should never put our hope in any social, cultural, or political context. Our hope is in Christ alone, and one day he will come and bring a kingdom in which all things are made right. Brings us to the third plot move, redemption. Now, fallen redemption run on parallel tracks throughout the scriptures. So after the fall, God immediately in Genesis chapter 3 promises, gives a veiled promise of the Messiah, the seed of a woman. And then he affirms that promise and expands that promise and nuances that promise throughout the Old Testament. There's a lot of passages we could look at. We don't have time to do that right now. But finally, the Messiah comes, and the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter. Now, I know at most churches I can't go as quickly through this, but at your church I know I can. I know that you know this and you know it well. So this is a precious doctrine, and I hate it, but I'm going to have to go very quickly through it, okay? But the Lord Christ came and lived on this earth, took on human flesh. He was fully God and fully man. And he lived the life that we should have lived, a perfectly righteous and just life. And then when the time came, he gave himself for us on the cross. And when he stepped onto that cross, he took upon himself our sins and he paid for them. Took upon himself our name, sinner, wicked one, evil one. And he gave to us his name, righteous one. And that's a beautiful exchange. And then he rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, it confirmed that he was indeed the God-man. It also gave us a preview of the fact that our bodies will be raised from the dead one day and that our spirits can be raised from the dead right now. Our souls, we can be saved. And a preview of the fact that he will one day raise the universe from the dead. New heavens and a new earth. He will renew and restore this world. Then he rose, or he rose and then he ascended. When he ascended, he left behind a church and a kingdom. We don't have much time to talk about this. But God does his work. Uh, he builds his kingdom and he does it, he chooses to do it through his people. And uh, your church is an outpost of the kingdom where serious work is done. And one of the aspects of this church that's most serious is that we, you and your church and I and mine, we are being shaped to be disciples in a holistic manner. And as our hearts are shaped, our hearts radiate outward into everything we do. So when we operate in the arts or the sciences, we do it differently in some ways than someone who's not a believer or in politics and economics. There may be many similarities, but there are going to be some differences, sometimes some very significant differences. 
So Christ has begun the process of redeeming us spiritually, morally, rationally, creatively, and relationally. But that hasn't been perfected yet. And then if you look at our four relationships, he has begun to make things right between us and him. He's declared us innocent. We're believers. But he hasn't actually made us entirely righteous yet. That'll happen one day. He's begun to make things right between us and others. Right? When we love other people with the love of Christ, it makes things better, but they're still not perfect. Our four relationships with God, with others, with the world, and with self. So God has basically begun to make things right. He's already begun to make things right, but he hasn't made them perfect yet. We live in this time between the already and the not yet. That brings us to the last plot movement, new creation. And we're told in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 that one day the Lord Christ will come back, and when he comes back, he is not coming back as, as a lamb as a suffering savior. He's coming back as a lion, as a conquering king. Now you can never really separate the suffering savior and the conquering king. But the emphasis is on the conquering king. And when he comes back, he will defeat his enemies finally and decisively. And he will renew and restore this heavens and earth, give us a new heavens and earth. He will make all things new. We'll not make all new things, he'll make all things new. And there are several passages in Scripture that I want to cite for a moment. Romans chapter 8, if you'll read through that passage, you'll notice that Paul promises that God will liberate creation from its bondage. So I don't think he's going to liberate it from its bondage by sort of supernaturally carpet bombing it out of existence. He's going to liberate it from its bondage, set it free from the warping and distorting influence of sin to make it what it should have been in the first place. Um, If you go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and I'm going to read this as the last thing we do in this session in a moment, you'll see that Christ will reconcile all things to himself. Not all people, but all things. Every type of thing that he created, he will make all things new. This is a much better salvation than the one I had in mind when I was a kid. I basically thought that God was going to basically come back as an ultimate fighter and carpet bomb the entire world into submission and that I would fly away. Oh, fly away. Oh, glory. I'll fly away. And, uh, uh, you know, but what I found out is that the Lord Christ will renew and restore this universe. And if I did fly away momentarily, I'm historical pre-mills. I think I'll go out to greet the Lord and then we'll come right back down. And so I'll fly away, but I'll, I'll fly right back. And you can be on mill and believe that too. Um, so either one. What are you, Pastor Tom? Okay. I'm tottering on the brink right now. So maybe you can push me over. <laughs> um <clears throat> Uh, and so in that day, there will be worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Revelation chapter 5, that he will have redeemed for himself worshipers from every type of person who's ever lived across the face of the earth. We won't really know him in his glory until we know him as the king of the nations, riding in as the king of the nations. And then I want to mention finally that there will be a great divide at this time that's portrayed, for example, in the parable in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, that there'll be a great divide. There will no longer be an opportunity to believe and receive. And that there will be some who are cast into outer darkness and some who go into the warm embrace of Christ. And at this time, all of our capacities created in the image of God will be restored spiritually, morally, rationally, creatively, volitionally, Physically, we will be renewed and restored. All four of our relationships will be made right. We'll have a right relationship with God, right relationship with others, 
a right relationship with the created order, and a right relationship with self. And in that state, you're going to notice Revelation 21 and 22 that the, the, um, our heavenly condition, which is this earth, a renewed and restored universe, is cultural, profoundly cultural. Art and architecture and song, engineering and design. Now, I don't know that we'll be doing engineering design. I don't know, but there's a heavenly city. It's not like we go back to a Garden of Eden. We go forward to a city. God had always intended his imagers to till the soil, to make something out of what he gave them, and that's what culture is. And we're going to have culture in eternity because culture is structurally good. It might be directionally corrupted now in the fallen times, but it is structurally good. It's supposed to exist. Now, that brings us to Roman numeral four in your notes. I want to equip you with three questions. Anytime you act or interact or speak in, in a particular sphere of culture, there are three questions you can ask that will give you guidance. One is, what is God's creational design for this sphere of culture? Marriage. Good example, I think, right now. Art. Science. Education. Homemaking. House management. And all of these different spheres. What, is God, what would God's creational design for this be? What should it look like? Number two, how has it been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry? When you look at heart orientations of people in a society, the, the aggregate, the combined heart orientations of that society warp a culture. The sin and, and, and the prevalent idols in any culture, sex and money and power, manifests itself in unique forms, these types of idolatry in different cultures and warp it and distort it. So, it, And it takes hard work sometimes to discern what those things are. And the reason is we're so immersed in it we can't see it. It's like a fish doesn't realize how much he is immersed in the water until you throw him on the bank and he thrashes around. And then he realizes, if fish can realize things, uh, he realizes, wait a minute, I really like the water. And we are so immersed in cultural realities that it's hard for us to see how in our own country... Uh, the entire environment is so warped and distorted. So we want to discern how it's been warped and distorted. And then number three, the third question is, how can I enter into this realm of culture in order to bring healing and redirection? Even if your attempts are ones that nobody listens to, even if you never win, we never really win, only Jesus wins, and he wins in the end. Even if you don't win, and even if your role is only a very small and it might seem, seem to you inconsequential role, you still, whatever arena of culture you act or interact in, seek to redirect it toward Christ. And it is hard work. I mean, those are three, they seem like simple questions, but when you put them to work, it takes a lot of work. Fortunately, we're, we're not supposed to be doing this on our own. We should be doing this with other believers. And we do it in our church and we do it in the broader relationships that we have. Now to conclude for just a moment. Here's why this is so significant. It's not only that we make culture tilling the soil, so to speak. Culture, in turn, makes us. We make cultural institutions like, for example, the mall. And then the mall, in turn, shapes us. You know, you walk into a mall and all the advertisements on the signs and all the pictures are of these incredibly good-looking people with very white teeth, very sensual often, uh, 
you know, and it draws you in and it promises a redemption, a happiness. If you can buy this kind of clothes and if your clothes hang on you in this particular sort of a manner, the way they hang on this person, and if you have this sort of a social life, there's your salvation. So we make malls, but malls turn around and make us and offer false salvations. This is why cultural engagement is so important. And it's important that you teach your children from the earliest age to begin to think critically. You know, there's, I've got five-year-old, four-year-old, and two-year-old, so I haven't even been through the real parenting years yet, so I'm, you can just ignore me. But I do think I have some platitudes that those of you with real parental experience can apply. And, and that would be this, that if you wait until a kid's 18-year-old, if you try to hide them from their cultural context, not let them watch anything or hear anything or be around anyone who's not a believer, when they turn 18, it's probably going to be really ugly. You know? What age you do that and how you do that, I'll get to sort that out over the upcoming years. Um, but we've got to do that one way or another. My, my professor in seminary, Russ Bush, used to take his uh, children to movies once they got a certain age. They were teenagers who go to movies with them, and they would watch the movies together, and then they would debrief. They would do the hard work of asking those three questions, not exactly those three. These are my three, but something like that. And he was teaching them how to think Christianly and critically. And that's the thing we've got to do. Then finally, or, or B here, I want to say this, that we are engaging culture not because we think we'll actually be able to transform it. Not because we think we're going to win. Any victories we see in this world are going to be short-term, right? And they won't be comprehensive. The only real victory will be when Christ Jesus returns. However, we do this as a matter of witness and obedience. And we do it out of joy. We direct all cultural realities toward Christ in whatever we can out of obedience to him. Listen, if his lordship is as wide as creation, if he created everything, then his lordship is as wide as culture. And it's as wide as the furthest reaches of our personal lives. So that's obedience and then also witness. Our words and our deeds in any realm of culture ought to be a witness to Christ. And those words and deeds together, woven together, become a seamless tapestry that displays the beauty of Christ. Or to change the metaphor from a tapestry to a smell, it just spreads the fragrance of Christ. All of life is the argument of a thesis should be the argument of a thesis. And that thesis is Jesus is Lord. Words and deeds. And so what I want to do is I want to close by reading one of the most beautiful and powerful passages in the Bible. It's a Christ hymn in Colossians. Normally, people read just verses 15 through 20. That's the hymn proper. But I want to start in verse 13. He, and that is the Father, God the Father, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So we've been delivered from a dark kingdom into a kingdom of love and light. If I can put light in there for just a moment, I don't think Paul will be upset with that. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So it's through Christ's redemption that we are transferred from one kingdom to the other. And here's where Paul starts to sing with a pen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So if you want to see God, look at Jesus. He has all the rights of a firstborn. He's inherited everything. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So all things, both physical 
you know, both material and immaterial, all of them are created by him and they were created good. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Now, hold on, listen to that. In him, that's a fascinating statement. I wish he were here to teach us exactly what it meant. Um, and we know the heart of what it means, that all things consist in him. He is the linchpin of reality. So God the Father spoke a word and called forth something from nothing and then ordered the world by means of his word. And his, ultimately his word, Jesus, his son, holds it all together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness of God is in Jesus. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. I want you to focus in on the reconciling all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The salvation that the Lord Christ brings is a much bigger and grander salvation than the one I had imagined growing up. I worshipped a Jesus that I thought was big, but compare it to the bigness that the Bible ascribes to him. He was a teeny tiny Jesus who hid in my heart because he didn't have much to do with cultural realities, physical and material things except that I was supposed to save myself for marriage and not steal money. But other than some very clear, obvious moral principles, nothing else really mattered. And I believe that he would carpet bomb the world one day and get rid of it, and then we would float around up in heaven like, like gaseous vapors with little angels and harps, feathers. And what we find out is something much more powerfully good than that. I mean, that vision that I just painted to you comes from Greek philosophy. That's a corrupt vision of eternity where the soul escapes from the body and floats on its own. But we've got us something different. The Lord Christ says, now I made the entire world, the material and the immaterial, and I made you to develop it and make something out of it. And when I come back, I'm going to renew and restore it. I'm going to raise your bodies from the dead, and I'm going to save you, but I'm going to renew and restore this universe, and we're going to live together on it. And it's going to be a thoroughly cultural existence. So we've come to the end of session one. I want to pray and ask the Lord to take what we've learned and uh, sow it uh, into our hearts and prepare us for um, to leave and to do these things as we go. But, uh, but, all, but more pointedly tonight, to prepare us for our second session. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Only because of him can we approach you. And yet because of him we can approach you boldly and with confidence. And so we thank you that you stand in our midst. Thank, thank you, for Father, for giving us your Son and for promising that he will return to make all things new to renew and restore. We thank you that you uphold us by means of your spirit, that you carry us along. Um, we pray that by means of your spirit, as we embrace the gospel and allow it to shape us, as we seek to glorify you, Father, as we do these things, that you help us to bring you glory and do our neighbors good in our cultural actions and interactions. 
Father, we pray in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So we'll take, uh...